0: The Wickham Aeroplane by Francis Marlowe, Republished in the Perth Daily News on February 15, 1910 Chapter 1 From the golf links by the sandhills of Littlehampton an eerie, throbbing sound rose suddenly and disturbed the serenity of a calm May evening. It floated seaward on a light land breeze and here and there among the tawny grass and sand it roused a marten or a plover to troubled flight Following the unusual sound came a hurried opening-out movement among a score or so of men who, for some time, had been grouped about a queer-shaped machine which stood about 200 yards inland on the links. As they stepped away from it, this machine darted swiftly upward, and while the humming pulsations of a powerful engine mingled with the shrill whir of a lifting fan, it hovered for a moment above its starting place, and then, like some strange new bird, went skimming down the wind. Half a mile away, it described a graceful curve and returned on a downward slant that landed it lightly, almost as a snowflake, beside the men who had surrounded it two minutes before. When it touched the earth, a young man stepped from it. A young man slightly built and with a grave, clean-shaven, clever face and stood silent but with a quiet smile, listening to the tumultuous congratulations that beset him. The machine was Wickham's aeroplane and the young man was Oliver Wickham, its inventor, who had just given it a last trial trip before an attempt on the morrow to win the rich prize offered for the first heavier-than-air airship to cross the English Channel. Oliver Wickham had not the faintest doubt of his ability to annex the coveted prize. Confident that he was far in advance of other ambitious aviators, he had not hurried his preparations for the flight across the Channel. He did not allow his enthusiasm to outrun the caution and business-like thoroughness with which he had conducted every stage of his experiments. Other inventors had allowed themselves to be beguiled to public displays of their half-fledged airships and had been concerned with them in a series of ridiculous antics, but none of them had succeeded in coaxing their queer-looking machines to do anything that, in the least, resembled flying. The least lucky of these inventors lost their lives through their temerity, Some of them contented themselves thereafter with writing books and magazine articles on the art of flying and how to fly, while a few continued their experiments in seclusion. While all these unsuccessful attempts at practical aviation were occupying public attention, Oliver Wickham was industriously and unobtrusively experimenting. Finally, he succeeded in constructing a flyer. But it was not until he had satisfied himself beyond all doubt that he had conquered the air that he emerged from his obscurity. At the first demonstration of his aeroplane, he amazed the world with its simplicity of construction and its bird-like ease of motion. With it, he secured prizes that for years had been awaiting the successful aviator. His flyer fulfilled every condition laid down for the award of these prizes. He carried a passenger a stipulated distance Faux flew at a specified speed. He turned within a certain defined area and he rose to any height which the provisions of a prize demanded. Altogether, in tests, which he regarded as mere preliminary flights, he won prizes amounting to £30,000 and then prepared to show the actual possibilities of his aeroplane by carrying a passenger across the channel and making a point-to-point flight of 200 miles. Thus it was that he and his flyer were now on the golf links at Littlehampton, with all in readiness for his essay across the Channel. He had arrived there without advertisement, and this accounted for the small number of spectators at his last trial flight. But the judges appointed by the donors of the Mammoth Prize for a successful flight across the Channel had made all their arrangements, and next day all the world would be agog to know if the Wickham aeroplane had fulfilled its inventor's expectations. Except in one particular, Oliver Wickham made no attempt to keep secret the construction of his aeroplane. He willingly allowed it to be photographed and inspected and he was always ready to explain its principles to anyone interested in aviation. His one reservation was in regard to the engine that furnished the motive power. This, he readily explained, was his own invention and combined phenomenal lightness with immense horsepower. But he courteously declined to answer any question as to its construction. In spite of its wonderful and graceful mastery of the air, the aeroplane presented a most unwieldy and awkward experience when it rested on the earth before and after flight. Very much like three great box kites braced together it looked, those forward and behind acting as rudders, while the central one had longer and broader planes. And carried the engine and a seat designed to hold two persons. From the engine, two shafts projected, one perpendicular to the lifting fan, the other horizontal to the propelling fans in front. Flanking the seat were three levers, and with these, every motion of the flyer could be controlled and directed. Undoubtedly, the Wickham aeroplane was the nearest approach to the ideal flying machine that had yet been invented. Already several governments had attempted to purchase its patent rights, but Oliver Wickham had withstood all offers. It was his intention, however, if he successfully accomplished a flight across the Channel, to conclude negotiations for its sale to the British War Office. Chapter 2. A Startling Flight The majority of the men who stood around the Wickham aeroplane on the Littlehampton Golf Gulf links were newspaper correspondents whose business was to send descriptive reports of Oliver Wickham's flights to the papers they represented. A group of them stood questioning him now, gleaning material for an interview that would be published next day as the inventor's forecast of the cross-channel flight. ''Why did you choose Littlehampton for your starting point, Mr Wickham?'' one man asked him. ''It would be a shorter flight from Folkestone or Dover.'' ''I'm not much concerned about the distance,'' replied Wickham with quiet confidence. ''My flyer can cover that without difficulty.'' I chose Littlehampton because it struck me as a quiet and convenient place where there would be less chance of having my start hampered by large crowds than at the places you mention. You feel sure of getting safely to France then, was another question. Certainly, was the reply. I shall land at Boulogne, on the spot I have selected, and when the necessary formalities have been completed with the judges there, I shall at once fly back here. What? You will do the double journey? Explained several of the newspaper correspondents. Yes, why not? was the smiling answer. I want to be in London tomorrow night, and I look on my flyer as the safest and quickest means of crossing the Channel. Of course, he added, an accident may upset all my plans, but I do not expect one. While the inventor was thus occupied with the newspaper correspondence, the other men who stood about were listening with undisguised interest to a tall, bearded, powerful man of middle age who held their attention with a description of the ease with which the Wickham aeroplane could be handled in the air. This was a Colonel Borisov, a Russian of charming manners, who since the appearance of the Wickham flyer was known everywhere as a keen aviator. On the day that Wickham made his first public flight, Borisov introduced himself to the inventor, and so ingratiated himself that his suggestion that he should act as passenger in tests that required that the aeroplane should carry the double burden, Was unhesitatingly accepted thereafter he had accompanied Wickham in many of his flights and on several occasions had been allowed to use the levers under the inventors tutoring hands the reward of his faith in the flyer was that he was to be the passenger on its first flight across the Channel tall and handsome the Russian was a commanding figure and towered over his hearers as he spoke rapidly and excitedly his slightly foreign accent grew more pronounced and his smoldering black eyes flamed above his hawk-like nose as he enthusiastically recounted his own experience of steering the Wiccan flyer. "'If you do not fly too close to the ground,' he exclaimed, "'it is entirely without danger. "'To me, as I handled the levers, "'the feeling of security and control was as great as if I had been riding my bicycle. "'Once only I had a thrill of nerves. "'I had got too near some trees and curved, perhaps too sharply,' to avoid them. The machine tilted and dropped, but the danger was over in a second, for by the time Wickham, who had been watching me, got his hands on the lever, it had recovered itself and swept on like a gull skimming the waves. If we had been closer to the ground when she dropped, there was danger, but high in the air, there is none. Just here, Wickham moved away from the newspaper men and signaled his two assistants to run the aeroplane into a temporary wooden shed that had been erected to shelter it. Borisov saw the movement and swung sharply around. "'Ah, Wickham!' he cried with genial entreaty. "'Do not put your beautiful bird to rest yet. "'If it would not weary you, I should like just one short flight. "'I would ask to go alone, but I know that with so much at stake tomorrow "'you would not care to risk it in my inexperienced hands.' "'Oliver Wickham stood irresolute a moment "'and looked across the dun sandhills to where the sun was setting on a golden horizon.' "'It's a bit late,' he said doubtfully. "'Late!' cried Borisov, with a gay laugh. "'Why, there's a full hour of daylight yet, "'and we can be back and have your flyer in the shed "'inside a quarter of an hour. "'Come along, just a short spin. "'It will refresh my confidence "'and get me in trim for our great flight tomorrow. "'Besides, these gentlemen would be glad to see "'how easy the beauty carries a double load.' "'There was a chorus of entreaty to Wickham "'at Borisov's smiling appeal to the onlookers. "'All right, then.' "'said the inventor pleasantly. "'I will be glad enough to have a trip with you, "'now that I know our friends here are not in a hurry to get away. "'You are such an enthusiast, Colonel Borisov, "'that you forget that the part of spectator might become wearisome.' "'Ah, Wickham,' replied Borisov with mock sadness, "'you will never realize the value of advertisement. "'To be really successful, you must lose no opportunity "'in thrusting yourself before the public eye.' "'As he spoke, he followed the young inventor to the aeroplane and from his seat in it, chatted animatedly with the spectators while preparations were made for another flight. At last, Wickham seated himself also, braced his feet against a stay that served as a footrest, and leaned forward to the engine. A second later, the throb of the motor and the shrill whir of the lifting fan again disturbed the evening stillness. As the flyer rose swiftly from the earth, Borisov looked down with a beaming smile on the upturned faces. Au revoir, gentlemen he cried. Do not be alarmed! His concluding words were lost, drowned in the cheer that uprose from the throats of the men below as the flyer shot westward at an amazing speed. Lord, she's a wonder, cried the war office expert admiringly. That's a forty mile pace! His exclamation passed unnoticed. The others were watching in enthralled silence the airship's graceful, unfaltering flight. A mile away, she inclined upward and soared easily to a height of 200 feet. She's turning now, exclaimed a newspaper man, taking this move for a preliminary to a swooping curve. But no, steadily she pursued a direct westerly course, swept swiftly over the village of Climping, cleared the square tower of Climping's ancient church by well over 100 feet, and still showed no indication of turning. Suddenly, she took a wide sweep toward the sea. Now she comes, was the cry. But again, the movement was misleading. She sailed on and on, steadfastly, surely, And soon, while the watchers murmured with amazement and admiration, she became a mere speck between sky and sea. The war office expert lifted a pair of field glasses that were slung by his side and gazed intently seaward through them. By Jove, he muttered softly. There's no doubt about her crossing the channel. She's simply a marvel. He stared silently through the glasses for a minute or so. Then he lowered them and looked around him with a slightly puzzled expression on his face. There were many faces on which this expression was reflected, for the airship was no longer visible to the naked eye, and impatience for her return was growing into uneasiness. Any sign of her turning? A newspaper correspondent at his elbow asked him. Not a sign, he answered with a troubled air. I cannot quite understand it. Wickham said it was only going to be a short trip, but he's well out to sea now. I can scarcely see the aeroplane with my glasses. By this time, the airship's prolonged flight was the subject of general excited discussion. It was useless to attempt any longer to follow her course. And although a telescope or a field glass was occasionally turned anxiously seaward, there was nothing to be gleaned of her from the closest search of the horizon. Many suggestions were advanced to account for Wickham's delay in returning. One that was strongly supported was that there was something amiss with the steering gear, and the flyer was therefore beyond Wickham's control. The theory that the inventor had extended his flight to an unpremeditated trial trip across the channel was quickly scouted when it was pointed out that the aeroplane was heading almost due west when it was last seen. Eventually someone recalled Colonel Borisov's parting words, Do not be alarmed. The war office expert caught eagerly at this straw of reassurance. Yes, he exclaimed, Borisov certainly did say something like that. He was trying to tell us something, but I did not quite hear what it was. There was no one who could supply the missing words. But the phrase, do not be alarmed, was in the end accepted as being intended to apply to some such situation as had now arisen, and for a time all disquieting feelings were held in check. Thus matters stood for a time, and glasses were again turned seaward But soon the growing dusk dimmed the horizon. The stars gleamed palely through a cloud-flecked sky, and the watchers lowered useless glasses and turned blank faces on each other, hesitating to name the fear that gripped them. Slowly, reluctant to acknowledge the hopelessness of expecting the flyers' return, the men moved toward the wooden shed and stood about it in groups, talking in hushed voices. Half an hour passed thus, and then through the darkness, there was an exodus of the newspaper correspondence. They had agreed that it would be indeed a marvellous thing, a thing past hoping for, if Wickham, supposing he was safe, should find his way back to his starting point. They hurried, therefore, to send the story of his thrilling flight and disappearance to their various offices, from whence messages were in hot haste dispatched by telephone, telegraph and cable to the coastwise towns of France and the south of England, reporting the news just received from Littlehampton and urgently demanding instant notification and an interview with Wickham on his experience from whatever point at which the aeroplane might chance to land. This duty done, the newspapermen returned to the shed on the golf links, but found it deserted by all, except the inventor's two assistants, who refused to despair of his return. As long as it was possible for them to get news to their papers, the newspapermen kept vigil with the faithful too. But it was all to no purpose. For in the morning, the newspapers of the world told their readers that the Wickham aeroplane and its inventor had disappeared as though they had never existed. Chapter 3. Oliver Wickham's Story Hope for the reappearance of the Wickham aeroplane did not die easily. After the first sensational account of its disappearance was published in the morning papers, it was realised that Though Wickham might have found it impossible to get back to Littlehampton, yet he might have made a descent without difficulty in some out-of-the-way spot in England or France, from whence news of his safety might conceivably have been delayed in reaching the outer world. Authorities on aviation, interviewed for the early evening papers, held to this view. They pointed out that the missing aeroplane had been submitted to the most trying tests before the channel flight was decided upon. They expressed the utmost confidence in her stability, and refused to entertain the idea that disaster had overtaken her. Mr. Wickham, said one expert, is a man who does unexpected things. His companion, Colonel Borisov, is an intrepid adventurer, and I shall be very much surprised if they have come to grief. Let us wait until the hour at which they are arranged to fly across the Channel. If there is no news of them by then, it will be time enough to entertain serious apprehensions. For the general public, this was too calm and sane a view to take of the matter. A first-class sensation had been served up to them, and they made the most of it. The Wickham aeroplane mystery was almost the sole topic of conversation everywhere, and the strangest rumours ran riot concerning it. But the wildest stories told did not touch the truth, and the time at which the channel flight was to have started arrived and passed without the faintest inkling leaking out as to what had actually happened to the Wickham Flyer. The unravelling of the mystery was begun by a central news message from Brest, which appeared in the latest editions of the London Evening Papers. This message stated that a pilot boat from Brest had picked up a man from a small, oarless boat which was tied to a buoy that marked the entrance to the Framvure Channel. The man was evidently an Englishman but he gave no account of himself to his rescuers and was taken charge of by the British Vice-Consul at Brest. In the morning followed a startling sequel to this message. The Brest castaway was Oliver Wickham, and the story he told was almost incredible. Narrated in his own words, it revealed a thrilling experience and cleared up the mystery of his strange flight from Littlehampton. When Colonel Borisov proposed that we should have a last trial trip before our attempt to cross the Channel, I was glad to consent, he explained. I only hesitated because of the lateness of the hour, and lest the friends who were with us were anxious to get away to their hotels. Borisov had accompanied me on many previous flights, and knew almost as well as I how to handle the levers that controlled my flyer. I'm not sure whether it was he or I who suggested that he should be my passenger on the Channel trip. But I was pleased with the arrangement, for he was a man of iron nerves and we had also become very great friends. When we started, it was my intention to fly only as far as Climping Church, perhaps about a mile and a half, and we could then, as Borisov himself said, have got the flyer stored away in her shed within a quarter of an hour. But when I would have turned, Borisov persuaded me to go on another mile or so. I did this willingly, for, after all, it only meant a delay of a couple of minutes. Then he suggested that we should turn seaward. "'It will give us a taste of what we have to go through tomorrow,' he said. Without any misgivings, I shifted a lever and we swept out to sea. And now, at Borisov's request, I moved so as to allow him to handle the levers. A little later, I looked at my watch and saw that we had been flying nearly six minutes. Frankly, I was sorry to cut short our flight.' for it was my first experience of flying above the sea, and it was so enjoyable that I would gladly have prolonged it. But our friends were waiting, perhaps growing anxious, and dusk was near at hand. We must really get back now, Borisov, I said, regretfully. He appeared not to hear my words. We were flying at a pace of close on 50 miles an hour, and he was leaning forward like a racing motorist, seemingly oblivious of me and of everything. Borisov, I cried, touching him lightly on the arm next to me. He glanced over his shoulder at me now. "'Swing around, man!' I shouted. "'We must get back now!' But he only smiled cheerfully at me and made no move to turn my flyer or to check her speed. Almost under us now was the shingle beach of Selsey. I could see a few red-coated golfers on Hailing Island Licks. Portsmouth Harbour and its shipping sprang out of a smoky background on our right. And in a few minutes we should be rushing over the Isle of Wight at the speed of an express train." ''Borisov!'' I shouted again, and stretched across him to regain control of the levers. But he thrust me back with a swift movement of his shoulders, and left me shocked by the sudden belief that something had gone horribly wrong. Before I could speak again, Borisov looked round at me. He had shut off speed a little. ''Wickham!'' he said quietly, almost in my ear. ''It will save us both trouble if you sit still and do not worry me any more.'' "'We are going to take a longer flight than you thought, "'and as the flyer requires all my attention, "'I hope you will not disturb me again.' "'My first impression was that the man was mad, "'but he smiled so pleasantly at me as he spoke, "'and his eyes expressed such calm determination "'that I was forced to dismiss this solution of his queer behaviour. "'Look here, Borisov,' I said angrily. "'This is rather more than a joke. "'Turn the machine at once, "'or we shall not get back to our starting place tonight.' He turned to me again with an air of mild surprise. You do not seem to understand me, Wickham, he said. We do not return to the starting place. I have other plans, and if you will only wait patiently, you will find yourself greatly interested. This was too much for my patience, and I believe I swore as I snatched again at the levers. There was a frightful danger in my action. It was courting death to risk a struggle on the narrow deck of the airship. If our joint weight were flung to one side or the other of it, we would instantly go hurtling down to the sea. Already the airship was swaying terribly, and it was only its speed that saved it from disaster. But I had no thought of the perils of the situation. I was desperately determined to regain command of my flyer and take her safely to Earth again. I ought to have known better than to pit my strength against Borisov's. He was an immensely powerful man and easily frustrated my frantic attempt to get at the levers. Then he caught me by the throat with a throttling grip of his left hand and held me powerless. "'Look here, Wickham!' he said quietly and sternly. "'I don't want to hurt you, but I will not let you imperil my life. "'If you don't keep still, I shall be forced to drop you into the sea.' I squirmed in silent fury under his grip but the only result was that the pressure on my throat increased until I lay almost unconscious across his knees. And at last I lay motionless. He spoke again to me. I'm sorry to be rough, Wickham, he said, and he actually smiled at me. You will be quiet now, eh? What could I do? I'm not a coward, but I was helpless as a child then, and I gave him. We were travelling rapidly now, to the south of the Isle of Wight, driving straight out to sea and I was still at a loss to discover Borisov's motive in dispossessing me of the aeroplane. Unpleasantly conscious of the futility of again attempting force, I sat watching him, silently, racking my brains for some means of outwitting him. He cast occasional glances at me but did not speak, and I soon noticed that he appeared to be searching the horizon for something. "'You do not suppose we are going to strike the coast of France in this direction?' I said at last." For I began to suspect that, after all, the whole unpleasant business was the outcome of a freakish desire to cross the channel that night. He laughed shortly at this. "'There's the end of our flight, Wickham,' he said, and pointed to where a steamer's smoke was dimly visible through the dusk, some ten miles away. I did not understand him then, and was left trying to unravel his meaning while he steered the flyer straight for the streak of smoke.' The man's skill with the machine was greater than I had believed. As he spoke to me, he altered our course a little, and within a few minutes, I saw that we were heading off a splendidly built yacht, a 2,000-tonner, I supposed, which was steaming swiftly up from the southwest. As the yacht and my flyer drew close together, they tooth slackened speed. And a little later, under Borisov's direction, the flyer swooped toward the vessel. In an instant, then, the true significance of Borisov's seeming madness flashed upon me. While we made our downward swoop, it dawned upon me that the meeting with the yacht had been carefully planned by Borisov, and I knew that we had reached the climax of a cleverly engineered plot to steal my aeroplane. With a sweep of my eye, I saw that there was a platform erected on the yacht's quarter. Clearly, this was intended to receive my flyer, and it burned into my brain like a ghastly nightmare that unless I could prevent it by some desperate action, my aeroplane would be in the hands of England's enemies within the next few instants, nerved to despair and caring little what became of me. So long as I could foil Borisov in his treacherous design, I cast about frantically in my mind for some means of preventing the flyer from passing absolutely into his possession. My previous experience told me how useless it would be to pit my strength against his. Already we were within 50 yards of the yacht, flying no more than 20 feet above the sea, There were only a few seconds left for me to act in. What could I do? I glanced about me in desperation. Borisov was intent on the steering and did not notice my agitation. My eyes alighted on the engine, and I had an inspiration. The aeroplane would be useless to its captors if I could destroy its machinery, and the construction of the engine was a secret. Torture could not make me yield up. As this wild idea entered my mind, I acted on it, stealthily, So that I should not attract Borisov's attention, I shifted my position. When I was near enough to the engine, I shot out my right foot with all my strength at a certain lever. The crash was the first warning Borisov had, but it came too late for him to avert the ruin of his plans. With a rending, tearing sound, the machinery jammed. Borisov plunged at my throat, and amidst the grating shrieks of the broken engine, the aeroplane toppled sidelong and went whirling downward to the sea. With Borisov's fingers clutching at my throat, the sea closed over my head. When I came to the surface, I saw my enemy's bearded face within a few yards of me, and beyond him, not a dozen yards away, the yacht. To the right of us, the flyer was drifting like a wounded bird. There is little more to tell. Borisov and I were quickly picked up by a boat from the yacht. The expression on Borisov's face when he asked me to follow him to the yacht's cabin led me to expect rough handling but I am bound to admit that he took his defeat like a gentleman when he found that neither by persuasion nor threats could he induce me to undertake to build aeroplanes to his order. A few hours later, I was put into the boat, which the French pilot discovered at the entrance to the Fromver Channel, and the yacht, which could steam at the amazing speed of 40 knots, vanished into the darkness of the night. This was Oliver Wickham's story of how the first Wickham aeroplane was stolen from him as it was told to the general public through the newspapers. But there is reason to believe that in his private statement to the British War Office, he disclosed the name of a foreign power for which Borisov was acting. However this may be, it is a fact that the British government took immediate steps to secure the supremacy of the air by giving Oliver Wickham instructions to deliver a fleet of six of his aeroplanes within six months from the date of the order.